So this morning we're going to talk about worship in the presence of God and we're going to start right in the book of Genesis so you can be turning to there Genesis 2 and we're going to start at verse 7. Worship is a is a huge topic there are many things about it in the Bible many threads and it, worship is a large part of our meetings together and from the outside worship looks like singing and we do a, a lot of that we sometimes devote half of our meetings or sometimes all of our meetings to that so it's a big part of what we do and this morning I'd like to pick up some of these threads that go throughout the Bible and I believe God will speak to us and encourage us in these things and we'll learn something from his word so Genesis 2 verse 7 says right back at the beginning with Adam God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden that's the garden of Eden and there he put man who he'd formed and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and many of us know the story that was the tree from which Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sinned and that's the the rest of the story there for the next few verses into chapter 3 and I'd just like to pick it up after that in 3 verse 8 and here is one of the great verses in the Bible I don't know if you've noticed it before but here it is it, it, it's definitely one of the if you're allowed to have favorites it's one of my favorites it's one of the top 10 even one of the top five, the greatest verses. It says, And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The very place where God put Adam and Eve, the garden, was the place where he was walking. This shows us that God is not a distant God who only lives a million miles away up in heaven. He's a God whose original intention for us was that we will be in the same place as him. And it says, uh, Adam and, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. They'd already sinned and they knew their nakedness and shame. But the presence of the Lord God was there with them. They existed. They lived in and around the presence of God. And this was God's in original intention. But of course, sin got in the way and God explains the punishments in the next few verses. And towards the end of chapter three, uh, verse 22 says this. The Lord God said, behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God didn't want mankind to live in its fallen state uh, forever. So he took him out. He said, uh, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground, to be a farmer from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim. And we're going to look at those in a moment. Cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim are angels. And God put these special guardian angels at the gate to what was the presence of God and to the tree of life. These 
these cherubim, your, your Bible may say cherubs or cherub angels or winged angels. Um, the Passion, as it often does, gives us a very descriptive term. It says that they are fearsome angelic sentries. These are the great guardian angels that, that guard the way to the presence of God. And we see them a good number of times throughout the Bible. So let's just let's take what we've got there. God wanting humanity to be in his presence. And then let's pick up this thread of the cherubim. And let's see, let's see them in uh, Exodus. So I'm going to turn to Exodus chapter 25. And so this is after Moses has led the people of God out of uh, Egypt. About three months later, God gives them all kinds of laws and the Ten Commandments. And in verse 8 there, God is giving them instructions on how to build a mobile temple that is going to be used around the wilderness. It's called the tabernacle. Uh, and from verse 8, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanting to live with his people according to all that I've shown you the pattern of the temple uh, and the pattern of its furnishings just so shall you make it God says make me a a mobile temple according to these instructions and so then it goes on in verse 17 he says you shall make a mercy seat or a, or a cover of pure gold two and a half cubits in length and cubit and a half in width and you shall make two cherubim, these angels again, cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you should make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And the cherub, cherubim shall stretch out their wings, covering the mercy seat, and they shall face one another. Uh, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you'll put the testimony that I'll give you, and there... I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony. God presences himself in the Old Testament here above the Ark, which is a big gold box, uh, between these guardian angels that are guarding the way. Um, and then it says in 20, uh, 26, there's also, um, if we go from 26 verse 1, it says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with tent curtains. It's a mobile temple, so everything's made of curtains. And these tent curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim, those angels again. So all the curtains that make up the tabernacle have got pictures, artistic pictures of these angels. And then it goes on. There's also a veil, which is an important part of this as well. And if we go to 26, uh, we go to, well, let's go to 31 there. So you shall make a veil. This is 26 verse 31. You shall make a veil woven of blue purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. There they are again. The veil has got these designs of these guardian angels. Um, 30, 33, you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. 
The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy, and you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the tabernacle. And it goes on. In the temple, the most holy place where the ark was, where God met and spoke with the Israelites according to certain rules, very special rules, once a year, uh, one priest could go in in very special conditions. That The way to that was guarded by a, a veil, like a, a see-through curtain, just a like, slightly see-through curtain. And on this was these pictures of these guardian angels that are the same, it's the same picture as we see in Genesis. So they're guarding the way to the presence. And this is how it was in the Old Testament. I just want to turn to uh, 2 Chronicles, because later in the story, hundreds of years later, David wanted a permanent temple for God to live in. And so he made all the preparations. In the end, uh, God said, well, you're a man of war, and so you can prepare, but your son Solomon will build. And so if we turn to 2 Chronicles 3, um, you can read around this here, but there are lots of similar instructions that God gave for the temple. And again, there was a most holy place. And I just want to show you the veil in this temple. So 2 Chronicles 3, verse 10. It says, In the most holy place he made two cherubim, those angels again, fashioned by carving, and now these were big. They were overlaid with gold, and the wings were 20 cubits, like 20 feet in length. One wing was five cubits touching one wall of the room and the other was at the touching the other wall of the room 13 these wings spanned the 20 cubits overall and they stood on their feet and he made the veil this is verse 14 he made the veil of blue purple crimson and fine linen and wove cherubim into it so can you see the picture the most holy place behind which were the was the ark was guarded by a veil, a curtain, on which were these winged angels. And there were these pictures of these winged angels all around, these guardian angels. And God uses Old Testament pictures as images to tell us what the, the reality in heaven is like. Um, and, and there, are, there are very many pictures, especially around the temple and the tabernacle and all these images. They were all given Moses or given David and Solomon for a specific reason, because they meant something. And the veil on which these pictures of the guardian angels were was a very special picture. And I, and I want to show you the, the, the New Testament explanation of what was going on here. And this is, I just want to read a couple of verses from Matthew, Mark and Luke. Um, it was it was an important part of the story, uh, so all of the synoptic gospel writers wrote about it. So Matthew 27, verse 51. This is when Jesus died. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the temple that, that Solomon built, that we read about. Uh, Mark 15, verse 37 says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. He died. 
Then the veil of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. Luke 23, verse 45. Luke 23, 45. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Can you see God is making a very clear picture and explanation here. The death of Jesus parts the curtain. And as that curtain parts, you can imagine the wings of the cherubim, these winged angels that were to guard the way to the presence. All the way back to Adam, we know that there were the guardians that stopped us getting into the presence of God and as Jesus died they parted their wings the veil was torn in two and the wings parted and forever gave us access into the most holy place where God lives and where God speaks and if you read Hebrews 10 verse 19 to 22 you it goes even further and, and clearly says that the veil is the body of Jesus. So can you see, we have access now, restored. Those angels blocking us from the tree of life and from the presence of God are now, they parted their wings and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have access to the presence of God. Now this is very much a salvation picture. Primarily this is salvation. This is our restoration to God. But if we look at just a little more deeply, you'll see there are many things about this. And we get access to a place. We get access to a most holy place. We get access restored to the Garden of Eden. And there's a place where God lives and where God speaks. And that's what we find in worship when we come into his presence. And so now those guardian angels, those fearsome angelic sentries are not those that block the way to God for us, but rather they stand alongside us as the people of God and worship with us. They're no longer in opposition to us to keep us out but instead they stand there with us and worship God. And I'd like to just show you a picture of this in Revelation. So please turn to Revelation 7. There are many descriptions of these guardian angels throughout the Bible. Um, you'll see them in Ezekiel, you'll see them in Daniel. And in Revelation, they're called living creatures. That's the term that Revelation uses. And you can see a description of them in Revelation 4. Uh, all the eyes and the wings and all the all the things, but I'm just going to turn to seven, which is a picture of the. It's a it's another picture of the same, uh, the the same place of worship around the throne, <coughs> and it's a great passage. Seven verse nine. It says, "After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne." and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. wonder who these people are. 
and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, the cherubim, and, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And it says what they were, they were saying. And then one of the elders asked John, he said, who are these people in the white robes? Who are those guys over there? And John said, well, you know. And the angel said, uh, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So this is poetic language, but who do you think they're talking about? Who are the people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb? Well, that's us. The blood of the lamb has given us our salvation. There are a few more clues. They're the people standing before the throne. Well, that's our position. Uh, they've got palm branches and they're, they're crying out with a loud voice, a declaration of salvation. These are the people of God who are saved. And then look where they are. In verse 15, look where they're positioned. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That's our position before God. That's our legal position of where we sit as as all the Christians in the world. We're the people who are before the throne of God. We're allowed in there. We live there. And they serve him day and night in his temple. We don't have to go a million miles to find the temple of God. It is our position. That is where we live. And then it says, And he who sits on the throne, Jesus, will dwell among them. God will dwell among them. And this is Adam restored, but to even more. We, we are the people who sit before the throne of God. We, we are in the temple of God and we have the presence of God because he wants to dwell amongst us. Eden, Eden restored and much more. And so God is not a distant God. God is a, is a here and now God. And we, when we come to worship him, we we don't have to travel great distance and do great penance and do incredible exploits and works just to get into the presence of God. We're allowed in right now. All we need to do is say, God, and we're there. He's imminent. He's right here and he's right with us. And so if we keep these things in mind when we worship him, we, it's good to think that we're coming into that throne room. We're not barred anymore, but through the blood of Jesus, we have access to the place where Jesus is. We don't need a priest to get there. We don't need any, any external help. We're all priests, the priesthood of all believers. We all get to go and live and remain in the very presence of God where he lives and where he speaks. So, Let's just have a little think about what happens when we when we go into the presence of God. 
maybe on a Sunday morning, we're thinking about how to get to the church. We're thinking about the kids, maybe thinking about the lunch, uh, all, all the things that gone in the in the week. And then we come together and then we devote time. We say, God, now we're going to worship. And we give our full uh, concentration and effort and, and devotion. And, and this is the time of worship. What do we do? What do we do to get into that, that presence uh, and to meet with God and to hear from him? Well, the book of Psalms has many uh, songs and things that will help us in this. Psalms is Israel's songbook. And so many of the songs that we sing, many of the things that we uh, pray and talk about are all based in the Psalms. And we, we even read one of these Psalms this morning on, on this topic. Um, so let's just turn to Psalm 100. It's a good example. How do we get into God's presence? How do we get the right way into God's presence? Well, Psalm 100 verse 1 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. This is why we do so much singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. So we come with singing. We come with thanksgiving. We've come, we come with praise. This is why we do these things on a, on a Sunday or whenever we meet together. Um, there are a good few psalms around here that, that help us. Let's turn to 95. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and a great king above the gods. Verse 6. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. So we come with shouting. Uh, we come with joyful shouting and thanks. And then we come with worship. Sometimes we bow down. Sometimes we kneel. We can be quiet in the presence of God as well as being loud in the presence of God. These are all good ways to come to God. Uh, on, just over the page on Psalm 98. Let's read from verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with the trumpets and the sound of a horn. This sounds like a, like a football match, doesn't it? A football crowd knows how to do this, uh, with a trumpet and with, with breaking forth in song and rejoicing. Um, and we shouldn't let the football crowds out worship us when it comes to knowing how to worship. So we should do all of these things and many, and many things besides. Towards the end of Psalms, there's some really good praise Psalms that, that teach us. Uh, Psalm 149 tells us, verse 2. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp and all the instruments. So we should dance in the presence of God. It is good and it is right and proper that the people of God dance. And 
Psalm 150 then, finally. It says, praise him, from verse 3, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, with the lute and the harp, with the timbrel and the dance, praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes, with the loud cymbals, with the clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So we, we need to shout, we need to sing, we need to rejoice, we need to praise, we should dance, and we should get all the instruments and use them in the praise of the Lord because everything that has breath, every person, every instrument needs to praise the Lord. This is the right way to come to God in worship. So what happens when we get there? What happens when we get to the presence of God? Well, there are, there are many things, but I'd just like us to just focus on one very important thing relating to prayer. And we're going to go back to Revelation. Revelation has, has a great deal to teach us about worship. So we're going to go to Revelation 5, verse 8. <clears throat> and at this point in, in the story in Revelation, uh, the Lamb has come and he's opened a scroll. And so 5 verse 8 says, When the Lamb has taken the scroll, the four living creatures, those cherubim we were talking about, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, they're all musicians, and golden bowls full of incense. Now, incense is perfume that you burn. Yeah, incense is perfume that you burn. And it tells us, what that's a picture of here in Revelation. That incense is the prayers of the saints. Okay, and it doesn't tell us just here what happens to that incense, but it tells us in chapter eight. So we go to chapter eight, verse three, and it says, another angel having a golden censer, a censer is what you put incense in. This angel came and he stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. The prayers of the saints are spoken of as incense. And the angel has even more incense. And so he puts it on the altar with the prayers of the saints and it mingles together this incense, the prayers of the saints, into a sweet-smelling aroma. A cloud of perfumed smoke. That's our prayers. And it goes up and touches the nostrils of God. God smells our prayers when we're there at, at the altar in his presence. The, our prayers go up. And he, he smells them and it's pleasing to him. And let's see what happens. The smoke of the incense goes up. Uh, verse five, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings and an earthquake. When we pray in the presence of God, there is a response from God. God will always respond to worship and he will always respond to our prayers. And the response in this case was noises, thunderings, 
and lightnings. And then it come, God's response comes crashing down to earth and the earth is shaken. This is the response of God to our prayers. And so we, we do many things in the presence of God, but, but one of the very most important things is that we talk to him, we communicate with him, and he responds. And God will always respond to the prayers of the saints. So in the presence of God, we encounter him. It's the place where he is. It's the place, remember in the Old Testament picture, he, between the cherubim is where he spoke to Moses and the people. God will speak to us. And as we enter his presence and we pray and ask him, ask him to intervene for us on the earth. So the response from heaven comes powerfully. And in this poetic picture, there's an earthquake. God sends his response and it comes booming down into the earth. There are many other things that we can receive from God in his presence. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we come boldly before the throne where we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Psalm 116, 11, sorry, 16, 11 tells us that we find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his presence. And in Acts 3, 19, it tells us that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So we get mercy, we get grace, joy, pleasures, refreshing, we get answers to our prayers. We get a response from God and we get to meet with God. And so just one more thing that I just want to say about the presence of God is that God himself wants to presence himself with us in a very powerful way. He wants to come and appear and meet us. Um, and I'm just going to take us back to Remember we talked about uh, Solomon's temple. So I'm just going to turn back to 2 Chronicles. And after Solomon had built the temple, uh, he had a great worship meeting uh, to, to bring the ark and to dedicate the temple. So 2 Chronicles 5 details this. I'm just going to take a couple of verses from verse 11. So this is the, the, the temple finished, the permanent, the permanent temple. It said, uh, it says, as it came to pass, when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping the divisions, and the Levites who were the singers, so we've got the singers there, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jejuthun, so that's a singer, and a prophet and a musician, with their sons and their brethren, they stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, so this is the worship group. They had cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And with them, 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Just imagine what 120 trumpets sounds like. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound. To be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forevermore, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. 
so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What an amazing picture that is of great and wonderful worship. And the worship went up to heaven and God must have must have been so touched and so impressed by the worship that he wanted to go and get involved and he presenced himself in a cloud so much so that they couldn't even they couldn't even carry on such so strong was the presence of God and this is the old testament we have a an even better covenant on better foundations we have the new covenant Hebrews tells us all about that. If it can happen in the Old Testament, how much more do we have access to now that we have the the body and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus? And if, if the priests and the people who were here knew their history, they would have known that something like this had happened before. Because when Moses went to go and get the Ten Commandments and the other laws, Something similar happened. So this is my last Old Testament verse here. We're just going to go back to Exodus. Now we were in Exodus 25 before. We're just going to go a little bit before that uh, into Exodus 24. And this tells us something about worship. So in Exodus 24 verse 1... God said to Moses, now come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar, worship from a distance. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near the people that go up with him. Uh, And then let's go to verse 9. Now Moses went up, also Aaron Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel they saw him they were invited to worship they came up and they saw the God of Israel and what did they see they saw uh, there was under his feet a paved work of sapphire stone like the very heavens in its clarity that's what they saw and that's a description that we see a number of times in scripture for example uh, revelation 4 you see the, the the pavement the gold pavement and then have a look in the last couple of chapters of revelation as well there's a there's a golden pavement in front of god it doesn't say that they saw all kinds of things about the throne or about what was going on in heaven or anything else they caught a glimpse just a little glimpse of god but they did see him it says then but on the nobles of the children of israel he did not lay his hand so they saw god and they ate and drank worshiping afar they caught a glimpse of of god then the lord said to moses come up to me on the mountain and be there and i will give you tablets of stone the law and the commandments which i've written so moses arose with his assistant joshua and moses went up the mountain of god uh, 15 then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain just like with Solomon now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and a cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire 
on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and up into the mountain. And God spoke and told him great many things about the law and the Ten Commandments and all kinds of things. I just want this to be a, a, an encouragement to us. It is possible for us, for people to come and sing with us and to, to dance and to shout and sing and worship. And you may glimpse God. You may truly see God when you worship. But there is a fullness. There is always more of, of depth in worship. It's not just about singing the songs. The songs are good. It's not just about dancing. The dancing's good. But there is an intimate presence of God that we can access that is beyond just some singing. It takes devotion and humility and giving ourselves to God. But there's a place where the glory and the presence of God can come into our meetings that we should look for, that we should long for. When I was a young man, I was discipled by a great man of God called Graham Deacon. He was the, he was the leader of King's Church. Many of us in this meeting will know him. And there was a call for all the people in um, Ministries Without Borders, or it was, it was Covenant Ministries then, that the leaders there, the apostles and the prophets and, and the, the main leaders of that movement were to get together and they were to bring the people they were discipling. It was called a Fathers and Sons event. So Tony Ling was there, and I think Bryn, or Kerry, Kerry Jones was there, and, and many of the, the great generals of God in that movement came, and they each brought someone. Graham brought a small group of us that he was discipling. So there was about 30 or 40 people who were all very old, strong Christian leaders. Um, and, and the young men and women that they were with. Uh, and I remember Matthew Link, the worship leader, he got up at the front of that meeting at the beginning and he started playing the guitar and he only played one chord, just one chord. And that place erupted in worship like I've never seen before. Everyone there fully devoted to God. And it was only a short time, but I remember the the presence of the Lord came so powerfully, so strongly into that meeting, it was touchable, it was, it was almost tangible. And I've never seen since, and I'd never seen until then, such manifestation of the presence of God. And it touched me, and it changed me forever. I've, I will never be the same since that moment, and it has always been with me. When I'm worshipping, when I'm leading worship, or I'm in worship by myself or with the congregation, that's what I'm remembering, that presence of God that just, it, it's so hard to describe. It's just that God is there, and God will meet with us like this if we if we look to him, if we ask him for his presence. And so then, just to finish, we're just going to look at one or two practical things, some very practical how meetings should go, uh, just these last few minutes. And Paul 
talks to the Corinthians quite a bit about how their meetings should go. He had to bring seemingly some correction uh, and how things should be in order. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 11, for example, he talks about breaking bread. That's important in our meetings. 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifts, also important in our meetings. 13 is love, and it's it's no accident that these things are all put together because all these things must be done in in love. And then 14, he comes and gives us some practical help on how to run our meetings, how to worship together and to be together in his presence. So 14 verse 1 says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So he's telling us, church, desire, want spiritual gifts and then he elevates prophecy and he spends quite a bit of the next few verses elevating prophecy he says you should speak in tongues that's great but when you come together prophecy is something that you should really be wanting because that's the thing that really builds everyone up uh, and so just pick it up in verse 13 the kind of things that that, that we do in our meetings uh, okay so 15 what is the conclusion I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit. I will also sing with understanding. So he's saying, we're going to pray in tongues in our meetings. We're also going to pray in English or, or whatever your language is. We're going to sing in tongues. And we're going to sing in English or whatever your language is. Um, and then it goes on into verse 26. And this is where we're going to finish. It says... The, the, the title in my Bible, which was not in the original text, it's just helpful in the English translation here. It says order in church meetings. That's a good summary of this section. It says, how then is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, for building up. That's what that word means. So we might use those words. We might say, has anyone got an encouragement? Has anyone got a testimony? Has anybody got a, a word, a word of revelation or something like this? Let all things be done for edification. Therefore, if anyone speaks in a tongue, now this is when you give a message in tongues, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. Uh, but if there's... No interpreter, let him keep silent and let him speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak and then let others judge. Others there in the Greek is alas, it's, it's others of the same kind, other prophetic people. So we'll have some prophetic word. Uh, we'll have two, maybe three people and then other prophetic people will come and we'll just understand it. We'll, we'll make sure we understand what's going on. We'll, we'll summarise and make sure the word gets into us. Uh, you'll notice when our pastor Shasan leads meetings, he's, he's very good at this. A word comes, and maybe a couple of words come. He, he, he summarizes them and he makes sure they get into our hearts. You'll notice that in our meetings. And then it says, if, anyone, if anything's revealed to, to another who sits by, if anyone gets a revelation who sat down, then let the first person keep silent. So... The person who's at the front, if someone else gets a word, well, you need to be quiet. The person who's sat down needs to speak now. 
It says, for you can all prophesy one by one, all prophesy, that you may learn and may be encouraged. So if it were the case in one of our meetings that God gave some encouragement for us to 30 different people in our meeting, we could all prophesy. As long as it's in order and it's decent, we'd have two or three and then we'd make sure we understand, we'd judge those things, we'd make sure that those are actually what God's saying. And then someone else would speak, someone else would sit down, someone would stand up. And if there were 30 people genuinely with a prophetic word, we wouldn't need a preacher that morning. And I'm sure Shesan would say that God is speaking to us, let's just continue. All these words are coming. What do we need the preacher for this morning? That's what we're here to do, to hear from God. Um, and it says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. So as long as it's all done in order, we, we should all contribute. And so just to summarize this then, it says, when we come together, everyone has. And another thing you'll hear Shasan in our meetings very often say, as he did this morning, is there anybody who wants to share anything? Is there anybody with a word or an encouragement or a testimony? And we can all bring a testimony. We can all bring a prophetic word. And so when we come to church to worship, beforehand, maybe the day before or that morning, let's all think, let's, let's think God and pray. God, is there anything that you want to tell me that's for the church? Is there any encouragement that you want to give me that I can pass on to the church? Would you use me in spiritual gifts in tomorrow's meeting or today's meeting? As it says, uh, just in 39 then, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues and let everything be done decently and in order. We should earnestly desire. The Bible is, is commanding us. Earnestly desire to prophesy. And then everybody can share and uh, we can all be built up. Um, and as long as we do it in order and it's not confusing, then we can all do that. So I just want to finish by encouraging you that, that there are the gifts of the Spirit there. And we've not gone into great detail with them. I'm sure we'll do that another day. There are many spiritual gifts. God is a supernatural God. And when we worship him and enter into his presence behind the parted veil, into that presence where he is and speaks and responds, so he wants to speak to us and interact with us in a supernatural way. Our meetings should be characterized by great joy, by great uh, uh, shouting and, and great uh, loud singing and fast singing. It should be uh, quiet worship and humble bowing. It should be these things. It should have a lot of prayer. It should have a response from God and it should involve everybody. There's no single priest that comes and does all the things we believe in body ministry. Everyone gets to Jesus. Everyone can hear from Jesus. And he will bring his word and his power and his presence into our meetings as we look to him uh, and desire his presence amongst us. Amen.